The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Mi hijo, mi hijo se llama Eduardo. Él trabaja 14 horas al día. Seis días a la semana, fíjese. En un restaurante. Bueno, es cocinero. Sí, tiene cuatro hijos. El día libre de Eduardo es el lunes. Él se lo dedica a sus hijos. Um, y bueno, por la noche les enseña matemáticas. Oh, para Eduardo es muy importante ayudar a sus niños. Encontrar el tiempo para ayudar a sus hijos con las matemáticas no es fácil para Eduardo, pero es muy importante. Él lo considera una inversión en el futuro de sus hijos, porque con educación tendrán más oportunidades cuando sean mayores. Llama al 1-800-281-1313 o visita www.exitoescuela.org para más información. Éxito en la escuela, éxito en la vida. Y, y, y dígame, ¿y esto va a salir en la radio? Un mensaje conjunto del NAACP, People for the American Way Foundation, el Ad Council y esta emisora. Good morning and welcome to this June 14, 2012 edition of Hippocrates Now on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are broadcasting live from the University of California campus in Irvine, streaming on the web at www.kuci.org. And always available via podcast, you can find a link to this podcast and others by logging on to www.kuci.org slash talk. Scrolling down to this show or any of the others and clicking the link that takes you directly to our podcasts. I'm your host, Nathan Tang, and this is Hippocrates Now. We are dedicated to the science of medicine and fitness. Every Thursday morning, I'm here bringing you information interviews, articles, and clips about the latest and most up-to-date thinking about fitness, medicine, and your health. I'm also here to take your call, so feel free to call into KUCI 949-824-5824. Once again, that's 949-824-5824. And especially if your name is Mr. Wayne Dolan. Or you can email me at NathanCTang at gmail.com with questions, comments, or suggestions. So on with the show. Today we'll be talking with the very good friend of mine from high school, Mr. John Choi. Welcome to the show, John. Hey, how you doing? Good, great. So, I'm going to let you introduce yourself, and we'll get started. Sure. Uh, what's going on, everybody? My name is John Choi. Uh, I'm a Harvard freshman at um, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and um, I hail from Irvine, California, actually, and I went to the same high school as Nathan Tang, Arnold L. Beckman High School. And, uh, you know, from what I believe, I believe my uh, one of my favorite teachers at Beckman, Mr. Wayne Dolan, is tuning in right now. So I'd like to give a shout-out to him. He's an English teacher at Beckman High School. Um, so, yeah, a little bit about me. I'm pursuing a neurobiology degree at Harvard. Um, I'm an aspiring neurosurgeon. And, you know, in my free time, I like to play the clarinet. Um, go to the gym, 
and, you know, just hang out with my friends, go to the movies and things like that. Nice, John. It sounds like you're keeping up with all your all your hobbies, playing the clarinet. Yeah. Great. And pursuing neurobiology and aspiring surgeon. So is that something you recently wanted to do, or is that something you've, you've always wanted to do? Well, the thing is I've recently picked up on the whole neurobiology thing, and that's, that's because, believe it or not, I took my first economics course in college. And what interested me was the intersection between incentive-based decision-making and how mood can contribute to human behavior. And um, that just motivated me to explore what happens in the human brain and why people are driven to make such decisions. And, you know, as, as being a neurosurgeon, you can directly influence um, their ability to make decisions, um, to heal people who are impaired, and, um, you know, just... I've always wanted to be a surgeon, so I figure that, you know, being a neurosurgeon is uh, right up my alley. I think so, too, John. I think it is up your alley. <laughs> and um, you've been shadowing neurosurgeons at Children's Hospital of Boston. Um, what can you tell us about that, a little bit about that? Um, yeah, so I got the opportunity through a professor of mine, actually, and she introduced me to uh, some physicians at Harvard Medical School who actually concurrently uh, give up their time to uh, treat patients at uh, Children's Hospital Boston, which is actually the number one ranked uh, children's hospital in the nation. So to get, a to get an opportunity to volunteer at that kind of institution is just, you know, a huge privilege, especially as a freshman. And uh, my duties there include, you know, going on clinical rounds with some of the interns and residents, um, typing up some of the lab reports, some of the patient charts, going around bedside to bedside with the patients, um, talking to them, just seeing how they're doing. And, you know, lastly, uh, but most importantly, I get to observe surgeries. Um, so I've seen surgeries such as craniotomies, shunt surgeries, and cerebellar hemangioblastoma removals. And, you know, it's been just a great opportunity. Holy crap, John. Um, what was that last one, the crany, crany... <laughs> Oh, it was a cerebellar hemangioblastoma. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. John, that's crazy. Um, oh, wow. I think we have a caller. John, let's see if this is Mr. Dolan. Okay. Caller 101, how can I help you? Yeah, I, I wanted to see if I could pose a question to Mr. John Choi. My name is Wayne Dawn. I'm a long-time <laughs> listener, but a first-time caller. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Mr. Dawn. Hey, good to, good to hear you, Nathan. You truly <laughs> have the voice, of the, the voice of UCI, if I may say so myself. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so, John, I got a question for you, if you don't mind answering. Is, and and, I, and I'm ho I, I know this doesn't apply to you, but how many neurosurgeons do you think get into the profession because of financial um, financial prospects versus how many how many um, get into the profession because of um, because they want to genuinely help people and help the needy and also too is um, do do poor people have any problems gaining access to um, what neurosurgery can provide or is that just going to be um, something that exists within the realm of the well to do because of the prohibitive cost structure um, of neurosurgery. Um, yeah, so thank you for calling in, Mr. Dolan. It's good to hear from you. 
Yeah, and, and, uh, I'll, and I'll take my answer off the air, Nathan, but good to hear you love your show. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot, pal. We'll talk to you soon. Oh, no problem. Okay, you, you don't want to stay on or anything? Oh, no, I, I'll, I'll stay on, but I, sometimes they, calls are answered off the air, so not a problem. Yeah, go ahead. I'll take my answer online. Okay, okay sure. Well, it's nice talking to you, Mr. Dolan. Yeah, nice talking to you, Well, keep in touch, and I'll I'll come visit you sometime. Lord knows I'm always here. (laughs) And congratulations, John Choi, on completing a successful first year at Harvard. It's a heck of a school, but you're a heck of a student. Thanks so much, Mr. Dolan. Okay, all right, we'll talk to you, and I can't wait to hear my answer, John. (laughs) (laughs) Take care, Mr. Dolan. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, Johnny, so what is your answer to that question? All right, um, so to tackle that uh, multifaceted question <laughs> one by one, um, first of all, you know, there's a lot of people who are interested in neurosurgery, you know, of course, because it is a very lucrative profession. But I feel like those people who are interested in the financial aspects of that, those are the people who tend to drop out <clears throat> early on in medical school or throughout their shadowing careers. And, you know, they just can't handle the intensity of the job or the responsibilities it entails. And it's the true people who are dedicated to helping others and who are genuinely interested in finding out more about the brain and how it affects people on a daily, day-to-day basis. And I feel like it's those people who have the motivation and persistence and what it takes to become a neurosurgeon because it is truly a very demanding uh, profession. And um, the second part of that question about the cost structure of the medical field in general and how it pertains to neurosurgery. Um, you know, with the up-and-coming um, healthcare reforms, I feel like the cost structure of the medical field will be, you know, very changing. And um, it's my hope that people can have access to affordable drugs. Um, they can have um, better access to healthcare providers and primary care without the high cost of insurance and things like that. So we'll just have to wait and see on the prospects of uh, the cost structure of the medical field. And, John, I'm going to have to agree with you on that, and that's that's really true. We can only wait and see what happens if Obamacare passes. Yeah. Um, and relevant to, your, um, relevant to your first answer, I totally agree that, you know, the money for medicine, especially surgeons, isn't what it used to be. Um, and at the same time, if you're going into medicine for just the money, you're making a very, very big mistake. And the reason is that doctors coming out of med school, coming out of residencies, um, have so much debt to pay back on top of malpractice fees and all and whatnot that it really is not a money-making profession if that's what you're out to do. You really have to have the, have the heart to do it, the determination, and you know the compassion and the altruism to do it because it really is. It I hear, John, um, from surgeons that it really does take a toll on you, but if you really love what you do, more power to you. Thank you. And um, are you familiar with um, Ben Carson? I believe he's the uh, the chief neurosurgery, chief chief of neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Um, yeah, I am. Oh, very cool. Yeah. And you're familiar with the story as well? Um, not so much the story, but I've heard the name. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I had a little segment a while back, and, of course, I didn't, wasn't able to get him on the show, but I played a little clip about him. And somewhere in that clip, he said he performed around 500 surgeries a year because at one point, 
in the history of Johns Hopkins. He he was the neurosurgery department, and I just found that absurd. Is is that something that can be confirmed by by the surgeons you affiliate with? Um, yeah, that's an incredible amount of surgeries, but um, yeah, that's very realistic, actually. And that's that's ridiculous. Um, if you break it down, I mean, there's 365 days in a year, and there's 500 surgeries that you perform, maybe even more. That's more than one a day, at least, including the weekends. Right, and that's that's kind of crazy because the, the physicians that I shadow are normally operating, you know, around two times a week, and those are when I go in, in to shadow them during their surgeries. And that's a little more sane. <laughs> we'll just keep yeah. it. That. But it, it is it is demanding, John. And I mean, tell me, I mean, as an aspiring surgeon, you going in at I saw your Facebook post. I'm um, going in at six a.m. in the morning for clinical rounds, and uh, I mean, to observe surgeries. I, I I would I would assume that itself must be very taxing. Yeah, but I mean, it's all worth it, you know. Um, a lot of my friends ask me, "Oh, how do you get those kind of opportunities, and what?" Why do you keep doing those things? And, you know, just to put it simply, it's simply what I want to do in my life as of now. I mean, I'm open to different um, aspects of the medical field, and, you know, my opinions might change throughout um, my time in medical school, but, you know, as of now, I think that's what I really want to do in my life, is to treat patients and to help them out with their problems in the brain and to really get that sense of intimacy by interacting with them um, on such very important issues that are relevant to day-to-day life. And, you know, that's what keeps me going and that's what keeps me motivated. John, that's awesome. I think you have a very unique opportunities and experiences at Children's Hospital because I don't think um, undergraduates usually are able to do as many things, do as, many things as you do. I mean, shadow neurosurgeons. Um, and also do research, um, which we have yet to get to, um, but to shadow and to find, a sh- I mean, to find a doctor to shadow at the undergraduate level is already an accomplishment in itself, so I congratulate you, John. Thank you, Nathan. It's extremely hard to find one, even here in Irvine. I've, I've been turned down and rejected by, let's see, five and counting. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but, it's all a process, you know. Uh, at first, I emailed a lot of people um, from different hospitals, and the common consensus for all of them were, I'm um, sorry, you're too young or too inexperienced to volunteer. But, you know, it's all a process. You just got to keep going at it. And once you meet the right kind of people um, who are genuinely interested in giving undergraduates that kind of experience and exposure at such an early age, then you're golden from there. You just uh, got to show them your dedication and most of all your passion for trying out this uh, incredibly taxing field. And I would agree. And, John, I, I wish you the best for your... Um, for all your medical endeavors in in and out of the hospital, um, and on to research. What can you tell us about your research so far? Okay, so I am working in the Catherine Dulac Laboratory at Harvard University on campus. Um, our primary uh, areas of interest are molecular biology as well as uh, neurobiology, um, and how it relates to perception and sensory um, motor behaviors. Um, And my project right now is studying the cerebellum, actually, which is a very important organ in the brain uh, that, you know, looks at the abilities of coordination and motor function and how those things contribute to overall just the ability to do simple tasks such as moving, walking, and running, and even jumping and swimming. So right now we are operating on um, 
the model organism of mice, and currently we're subjecting them to behavioral tests by impairing their cerebellum and um, studying these genes in the brain called imprinted genes, which is a fairly uh, recent phenomenon in science. Um, imprinting is this concept of a parent of specific origin parent-specific uh, origin of allele expression. So basically, the paternal copy of an allele can silence the maternal copy of the allele and vice versa. So we're primarily interested in these kind of genes and how, if the cerebellum is impaired, how will the expression of these imprinted genes change in the cerebellum? So in essence, you're saying that you're able to change the the genetic makeup of the mice by impairing the cerebellum, or, or am I on the wrong track? Actually, imprinting is a form of epigenetics, which is not directly affecting the genetic makeup. Epigenetics means above the genome, um, so you're really um, affecting the mice's behavior through a process that's not really specifically genetic, if you put it technically, I guess. I see. That's... That's really cool. And what does this research hold for um, the future health of human beings? Right. So recently our lab, well, last year, our lab came up with a publication that actually developed a repertoire of 1,000 known imprinted genes in the brain. And these genes, um, we believe, have <clears throat> a lot to do with um, certain path pathological diseases such as uh, Angelman syndrome or Prader-Willi syndrome and other, uh, a host of uh, mood-related or behavior syndromes. And we believe that um, imprinting and behavior and the intersection of these two fields can uh, give clues to um, further avenues of research um, in behavioral and mood disorders. So this would fall in line to the like, psychological disorders, um, such as schizophrenia and stuff. Is that down the alley of that? Exactly, yeah. Okay. I see. Um, wow. Impr okay, John, I have to look this up. You know, I am. this is very unfamiliar territory for me. <laughs> so I have to definitely look this up and figure out what exactly is going on here. But that sounds groundbreaking, and I, I'm, I'm sure it is. And um, how does research, um, as we look into a broader context, fit into your schedule at Harvard? Um, research is definitely one of my main extracurricular activities. Um, a typical day for me would include going to lectures, my scheduled lectures, which are, you know, anywhere to four to five hours a day. And immediately after that, I would head to the laboratory um, and, you know, work there for about two to three hours per day. And, you know, the fortunate thing is that my lab is actually on campus, so it makes going to laboratory every day very convenient, whereas... Some of my other friends have labs at the medical school or at the hospital. So, I mean, they have to make it quite a trek to even get to the laboratory every single day for their assigned duties. So you have it good, John? Is that is that what you're getting at? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Very fortunate. Wow, but you said five hours of lecture. Of course, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it's split up, right? Uh, definitely, yeah. Okay. <laughs> five hours straight would be quite a doozy. Um, that's another word Mr. Dolan used to use. <laughs> <laughs> And then you go straight to the laboratory, and that's a day. And, of course, you, you do your homework, and that's crazy. And do you uh, 
do you add in physical exercise or do you work out all into your schedule? Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, working out is very big for me. I feel like, you know, keeping your body physically active is what allows your mind to be active all the time. And I try to incorporate working out every night at 1030. Um, we have very nice gymnasiums here. Um, yeah. I've been trying to, John, and um, little by little, little by little, I'm getting there. <laughs> well, we all know you're a fantastic swimmer, Nathan. So. Oh, I, I don't know about any more, but thank you. Thank you for the, thank you for the backtrack. <laughs> I put on a few pounds, so I'm getting, gaining weight in the wrong areas, but it's, it's okay. It's okay. I'm looking up to you, John. <laughs> you are my model, and you should be the model for... A lot of college students, John, you have an amazing determination, you have amazing aspirations, and the stuff you're doing right now is clearly amazing. Um, if there are any UCI, UC Irvine students listening right now, um, John is the epitome of what a pre-med student should be. Um, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but I'm flattered. Thank you. Of course, of course. But John, you know what makes you so special? What's that? You're one of the most kindest, and you're one of the humblest people I ever know. Oh, no, that's you, Nathan. <laughs> Why are you talking about yourself? No. I can be like the Hulk when I'm angry, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> but, John, I mean, I don't mean to be sappy or anything, but that's what sets you apart from most people. You can, you can approach, I mean, you can, you can go about your day um, doing groundbreaking research, doing well in your classes, and you can still be a people person. And that is something that really sets you apart. Um, and going back to, I mean, to medicine, we need more doctors like that. I, I don't know if you've been hearing the news that, you know, we need more humanistic doctors in the future. I mean, not, not that we are, not that we have non-humanistic doctors nowadays. I mean, there's plenty of fantastic doctors who are people, people, people persons, um, but they just don't have enough time to deal with um, each and every one of their patients because of, you know, the way the insurance controls their practices and the limited time they have for each and every patient. Um, so by virtue of, of just naturally being a good person yourself and naturally being a people person and friendly and personable, that will get you many places, John, and I can guarantee you that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, but, you know, it's... um. Yes, you know I'm just I'm I'm at a loss of words because I've I've ex I think I've exhausted my praise for you, John, <laughs> and I hope you feel the same way. Um, so we're gonna wrap up this little conversation in a few minutes. But after all we've talked about in this thirty minutes, which has been a lot, um, is there any one thing, or maybe a group of things that you you've taken away from your experiences this year and finishing first year successfully? Um, any epiphanies or just anything in general that maybe you could lend advice to incoming freshmen at the university level or aspiring pre-med students? Right. Um, yeah, just a few words of advice, I'm guessing. So, I mean, the main takeaways that I've had from freshman year are you really got to go after your opportunities. I mean, in college, nobody's going to be handled, just holding your hand and le um, leading you places. It's not going to be like high school where... There's going to be known opportunities there. To, in order to be really successful, you've got to be very aggressive and go for those opportunities that may lie ahead. And that includes, you know, making good interpersonal relationships, not only with faculty, but also with um, very reliable friends. 
you know, having an extensive friend network in college is very crucial because, you know, the person you're sitting next to during your math lecture might be the person who is going to be responsible for getting you that job in the future, you know. So the, the biggest thing, I think, is to focus on your relationships, um, focus on building a good network of people around you so that you can, you know, really reach out to them when things get tough. If you just need someone to really talk to or get um, guidance from, you can always know who to turn to. And secondly, you know, for those pre-medical, or not even pre-medical, just um, incoming college students, I really encourage you to, you know, explore your options in college because it might sound cliche, but that's what college is all about, you know, finding out who you are, finding out what you want to study, and if you can really picture yourself doing that for the next four years or even beyond in your lifetime. So try things you've never tried before. For example, I, I picked up ballroom dancing in college. I never thought I'd become a ballroom dancer after doing four years of water polo and swimming throughout <laughs> high school, but, you know, I really ended up enjoying it. And although I can't continue ballroom dancing because of my research commitment, I can look back and say that I'm glad I chose ballroom dancing because now I know how to ballroom dance. I can say that I've done things that I'm not very accustomed to. And, you know, it's those kind of things that make college memorable. And, yeah, for all you prospective college students, um, that's what I encourage you to do. John, I think you just hit a hit nail on, if that's even a, an idiom, on the <laughs> core of what university is all about. Exploring and, you know, trying new things, all the while keeping focus on what you want to do. Yeah. And, but I, I guess it's, it's easier, much, much easier said than done. Um, and you are an example of one who practices what he preaches. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and I, I mean, because John, I have, <laughs> I've encountered many people who say the same exact beautiful things that you do, but they end up not following them, what they're, what they're preaching. And, you know, you're, you're like, what the hell? What the hell's going on here? <laughs> yeah. But John, I'm, I'm so proud of you. Um, oh, and also, first of all, ballroom dancing, that's very hot. That's very sexy. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and if I mean, unfortunate, it's unfortunate that you, I mean, that research cuts into that time, and of course, research research is your priority. Um, but, dude, yeah, you got you got to continue ballroom dancing in the future. You, I, you got to dance with me. We're, we're to hit yeah. the dance floor, and uh, yeah, we'll do some um, <laughs> like a samba or something like that, or a foxtrot, some simple things yeah. like that. <laughs> well, John. It was my pleasure having you on the show. You've said and given so much advice to people who are listening. We had Mr. Dolan on the show, and he was a delight. Um, but thank you, John, so much for being on the show. Um, I myself will take some of your advice that you have given and really go back and think about it. You know, I haven't really made con network connections this year. I've just kind of been been um, doing this, radio, radio talk showing, and, um, of course, focusing my studies. But I've, I've got to do more. I've got to branch out, John. And you... you you are my impetus. Thank you very much. Oh, wow, yeah. Thank you for having me. And, you know, much love to KUCI and um, much respect to you, Nathan. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Doing what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> John, I'll see you in maybe a month and a half, two months. Yeah. And, sir, take care and have a fantastic summer. Enjoy yourself. Um, I'll, I will see you soon. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thank you, John. All right. Take care. Take care. For those of you that have been tuned into KUCI 88.9 FM 
In Irvine, you've been listening to Nathan Tang with Hippocrates Now. Our guest today was Mr. John Choi, high school friend of mine at Harvard University, aspiring pre-med, pediatric surgeon, pediatric surgeon, excuse me, um, one of the most amazing people you'll ever meet. So, yes, find him on Facebook. Um, maybe he has a Twitter. Follow his tweets. Um, but he's just an amazing person. And I'm at a loss of words to describe my feelings for him, which can be a little weird. But yes, thank you for tuning in. And uh, I believe this will be th- my last show of this quarter. Summer quarter is right around the road. And for those of you who are taking finals right now, or of course you can't be listening in if you're taking finals, but who have finals this week, please, please try your best. It's the end of the quarter, and just dig in and focus. Um, find some inspiration from your surroundings, and you'll do wonderful. But thank you very much for tuning in. Up next is Ziba Z. Until next quarter.
سرو کنی نیاد نفس بر که کار میکردم بغل من اصلا نمیخوام برو بکنم از طرف دار فقط چرا باید این حرفا رو به طرف زر چه تو نباید استفاده کنی از وقت زر اگه لاسه ماشه زاید بیکنم وسط جب که اگه نکنم بعد کنشی علف هست تو اینجا اصلا سر نکن که بشین نسخ برنگ به وجود بیار از کار زیاد ترک درست بذا با کرمات بیرون میاد نفس من فقط واسه دشمن و نفسی قفص من یاد بگیر کنده شادی بیرون بیای از سر تنگین یاد بگیر از خونه و سفر بعد ما آدم و هرچی میکشیم بوده از دست چپ پس همش به جنگ با سایه های وسط شب سیانو نخور خودتو نکش خودکه درون و بیرون کنه خود اینجا دبیر KCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Today on Our Digital Future, 8.30 a.m. to 9 a.m. Thursday mornings, we've got a very special director today from the Iran job, and this is going to be premiering at the Los Angeles Film Festival, which is June 14th in L.A. Nokia Theater Live to June 24th, the 10 days in Los Angeles, and I thank you so much for your time. And I saw the Iran job was a great film, and... First of all, I'd like to um, ask you, as a director, how did you get to where you are now? Me, myself, I have a background in film and media as an undergrad from UC Irvine, and I'm sure everyone listening in the same position as myself is very interested in how you got to where you are now as a successful film director for this new documentary, The Iran Job. Well, I went to, um, uh, when I was 19, I went to California to do an internship, first of all, and... Um, coming from Germany at that time and I did that for about a year and then uh, applied to film school um, and got accepted luckily and so I went back to Germany and studied film there for four years or five actually at one of the um, uh, you know most sort of prestigious schools there there were two at that time and one of them was in Munich so I went back to Germany did five years of school made a few films and then had a scholarship after that to um Uh, to come back to the States and you know I did one film after another and one thing sort of led to another and um, here I am luckily. That's very excellent. What gave you this idea for the Iran job? How did you get to become a part of this project? I was very excited when I saw that um, it was filmed for the city of Shiraz. I've actually been there twice. My grandmother lives there and most of my family lives there and um, my father is from Iran. My name Ziba is a Farsi word meaning beautiful so I personally saw the title of this film and wanted my father to see it right away and I was very excited to come, see it myself you guys should come to the premiere then <laughs> oh, how, far, how, how far right is it from Irvine to Los Angeles oh like 30 minutes no traffic or I'm in an hour with traffic so I definitely always uh, let him know because we live in Long Beach which is around the same time so we always want to check out well, the films If your folks are from Shiraz, you should make sure that they all come. And um, I think tickets are selling pretty quickly, so you, so you guys should go on that link, uh, the, the Los Angeles Film Festival link, and uh, try to make it for this Friday, because that is the world premiere. Um, however, we have another screening on Sunday also, in case you can't make Friday. But uh, for your question, I uh, I got a, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I got an article sent to me about American basketball players who play in Iran and uh, and I was inspired uh, by what they could potentially do for relationships between the two countries America and Iran and then uh, we started sort of trying to research um, some of these players and um, 
the, the person that we ended up choosing just happened to be uh, signed with Ayashiras, uh, which at that time was a new club uh, in the Iranian Super League. So that's why we, well, why I 